Caitlin. Emily. We're midway through October. Mm-hmm. Time for everyone's favorite subject. <laughs> favorite Halloween candy. Oh, oh. I actually did, weirdly <laughs> didn't know that's where this was going. <laughs> um, You're welcome. How, right. actually, I should rephrase that because we all know our favorite Halloween candy. If you don't know, it's Reese's Peanut Butter Pumpkins. pumpkins. Specifically, the pumpkin shape. They yeah. do a lot of different shapes, but they the pumpkin do. are the most important. So the better question might be, how many bags do you think you've eaten so far? <laughs> well, definitely one, because that happened in September. So at this point, probably, well, I've moved on to the mini ones, the mini shapes. Interesting. M-I-N-I. But I have M- many minis, M-A-N-Y minis. Do you think the minis are as good as the big ones? Like, does it, is the ratio stay the same? It's pretty good. It is pretty good. Uh, the big ones are better. I lie to myself and say that the small ones, I eat less of them, but it's actually the opposite. It's true. Yep. yep. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, literally. Um, but it is my favorite time of year. I also really, now we're going to get into the Easter candy thing. I know. We're pause I, on Easter candy. I actually think Easter candy is better. Um, but I do se- second favorite is is Halloween candy, and I'm enjoying the season. I've decided I really enjoy fall. Oh yeah, since it's finally not 100 over 100 degrees, degrees outside. Yep, and you get Easter nope Halloween candy. Mm-hmm. You get themed candy, yep. which is always great. My biggest problem was that the Halloween candy showed its face in August, and I had to really hold back on it. <laughs> it's really tough. I. In September, also saw Christmas decorations in Walgreens, and I thought I might set it on fire. <laughs> I appreciate that you didn't. Thank you. Um, but second favorite subject when it comes to October, and I say that very sarcastically, okay. scary things. Yeah. Scary movies and TV shows? Just scary things in general. Even I know, scary I, I, decorations. I don't like them. Okay. I feel very strongly about she's that. It. She's made the statement clear. Yes, I am. I love the fall. I love the colors of the fall. Okay. I love the temperature of the fall. I love. You the don't even like like fall. a whimsical skeleton. I like really cute costumes on children and animals. Okay, I was in World Market the other day, and they had a very like Nightmare Before Christmas like dog skeleton thing that I thought was adorable. Did you buy it? No. Okay, just curious. I am really lazy when it comes to decorations, Christmas only. I always get very tempted by other holiday decorations, like at Marshalls and Target and various places, but I don't have anywhere to keep them, and I am too lazy to put things up and take things down, except at Christmas. I do. I started last year decorating for fall, and I really quite enjoy it. I think I like, you know, as much as we can get different seasons, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it and lean in as much as possible. Fall's not bad because you could do that September through end of November even probably. Absolutely. And I have a handful of Halloween decorations that I put up just for October. They're they are not, not scary. scary. They're not scary. I One agree. is a black cat that says boo that goes in the front yard. I'm <laughs> glad to know Although it. my dog is terrified of it. Sure. That's <laughs> not shocking. Your dog's a weenie. <laughs> he's, just, he's a sensitive soul. <laughs> he's a weenie. Well, all of this is also not just tied to October, but tied to today's release which is Queer for Fear, the history of queer horror. And we have multiple panelists, but let's talk about the one that is like 
I'm going to call him like the, the scream queen, Brian Fuller. He does a really good job of like, some things are too scary. I know you can't watch Hannibal. Yes, but part of the reason I can't watch Hannibal is the gore. Yes, it sounds weird because it's so beautiful, but it is really gross. I know. But then he does scary things like Dead Like Me. Dead Dead Like like Me. me. Dead Like Me is also like, it's creepy and I, but it's great. It's comedy. It's like, I don't know that I would call it scary. Yeah, but it's about death. Yes. Yes. But those two things don't necessarily. No, but I mean, that's like a Halloween thematic. That is true. We should do a screening of that. I love that show. Pushing daisies that go, I don't know why that, that's like del- delightfully decorative. It is. His world, we, I mean, we talk about Someday. this all the time. We want to do a, what do we want to call it? The world of Brian Fuller. And about how he creates these worlds because they are beautiful and fantastical and the characters are, you know, just magical. Pop off the screen. Exactly. Some of One them day. are delightful. Um, someday we will get to do that. Did you want to tell your like favorite Brian Fuller story? It really is because I just feel like it describes him as a person. And when he came to the festival for the first time, I mean, this was only a second time if we're to be fair. (laughs) I feel like we invite him every (laughs) year. So it feels that he has been part of our lives and has been there many times. But the first time he came to the festival, one of two, which was 2016. Sure. That sounds great. It was right before, well, American Gods, I think, had just... No, it had not come out. No, it did not come out. Well, I was going to say it started production, but I don't even know that it started production. Definitely been announced. Yeah. And he was in... Maybe pre-production. Maybe pre-production. Yep. Yep. Definitely pre-production. So he was on a panel, and my best friend, Sarah, who is obsessed with him and also obsessed with American Gods, went to this panel, and afterwards because he hadn't talked about it because not very many people really knew about it yet. She went up to him to tell him how obsessed she was with American gods and how excited she was that he was doing it. And he showed her some art from the series that he said he had not showed anyone before. I don't know whether or not that's true, well, but it made question. her feel very special. And it was also very cool yeah. to be able to see something so early in the iteration. It's like sketches and things yeah. like that. So this became a bit of folklore about Brian Fuller and how cool this moment was for Sarah Stewart because he hadn't shown anybody else that. But then didn't something happen this year where somebody was talking to him about something else, a project? And he basically did the same thing. Like he opened up his phone and showed them this. And I was like, he either really trusts the people at ATX Television Festival. We are a very trustworthy (laughs) place for people to come and gather. In the greatest way, if you tell someone you haven't shown this to anyone else, it makes them feel really special. Doesn't it make you feel special? If someone tells you a secret, they're like, I've told no one this secret and I'm going to tell you. I once got in trouble by pointing that out to someone. I'm not going to go down this hole at an inopportune time and that someone thought I was actually doubting the piece of information they were sharing and it caused a big fight (laughs) so so pick your timing (laughs) also don't tell people that they are unique and special in specific ways if that is not true yeah because it will come back to haunt them (laughs) yes exactly it will not be good but this was a very fun thing we did this so we haven't done this a ton but we want to do more of it is late night screenings, which this one felt very appropriate to be a late night screening because of the spooky factor, Um, where we got a very early look at Queer for Fear, which is streaming on Shudder and premiered on September 30th. So uh, the final episode will be available 
the day after this comes out. So people can watch all of it. Um, but we felt obviously in June, we were getting a really nice sneak peek at something that was very passionate for Brian and a lot of people. And for our staff that went to this, it was like their favorite thing. I believe that for people in that room, everyone that walked out of that room said it was their favorite thing they saw at the festival, Yeah, which is really cool. And something that obviously we all know, scary things are not what, what I am drawn to. She's scared of ghosts. <laughs> I was, I'm scared of ghosts and many things. Um, She's a chicken. <laughs> yes. Also true. Which is probably why my dog is such a sensitive soul, but that so I didn't know a lot about this. I knew that I loved Brian, but I didn't know a lot about mm-hmm. this documentary history. and the history. And I don't watch many things on Shutter, even though it's an amazing platform. And anyone that loves horror, go there. This is for you. So I didn't know. Mu- I didn't know much to send people to this or to really promote it. But people were so excited about it beforehand, and we love when people discover new things at the festival. But I also love when someone's so excited to see something and then they walk out and. It was just as special and just as wonderful as they thought it was going to be. Given that this is a documentary, are you more apt to be able to watch it? Yes. Because it's the history of something. Yes. I will watch this. Okay. Guys, stay tuned. I know. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see how much it scares me. I will start watching it. And if it scares me too much, then I'll stop. Yeah. This podcast is going to get her to watch it. It's going to be great. As this podcast should get everyone Everyone to watch watch it. it. So with that, please enjoy... Go watch Queer for Fear on Shudder and then listen to this podcast, which is with Brian Fuller, Steakhouse, who's an executive producer, Nay Beaver, who's a consultant, and it's moderated by one of our favorites, Jim Halterman from TV Guide Magazine and TV Insider. Welcome, everybody. All right. Well, um, Brian, I guess the first question is going to go to you. Just, just how did this get started? I feel like in some ways this is overdue. Like we, it's been a long time since we've seen a lot of these clips and talked about this. But I love the series. Is here. Can you talk about it? Uh, well, it really started with Shutter producing Horror Noir. Has everybody seen Horror Noir? If if you haven't, seek it out. It's a fantastic documentary about the history of Black people in horror films, but kind of a bigger look uh, at exploitation genres being the only place that black people could get work in the film industry. And it's fantastic, it's educational, it's entertaining. So see Horror Noir. And because of Horror Noir, Shudder wanted to service the queer community in the same way that they were servicing the black community with Horror Noir. And where do you start? Do you just start with your own favorites and things that you personally like and then just dig into the history and all of that? It, it's pretty sprawling, honestly. And that's, that's our, I think, our issue with the whole project was how do we squeeze it all in and how many episodes can we get and could we get more episodes and uh, it really does kind of come from the interviews like what we get good interviews on and what people are talking about that sort of informs what kind of direction the series goes and steak when did you come into the project I came in a year ago, January. I think I started talking to you in the fall um, of that year. And um, Shudder was in the process of kind of ramping up up to be a four-part docuseries, and they needed someone to help kind of make sure it's all actually happening. The work, I'm the physical producer, make it happen guy. So that's, that's when I came in. We have an old friend in common, and she referred me, Eileen. And thank you, Eileen. <laughs> 
And talk about getting the people to come in and talk about this. Was it just kind of like you had specific questions you wanted to ask them, or was it more just let them talk about it? Because I feel like once the conversation gets going, we all have things we want to talk about, and our you know everybody brings their own perspectives. But how did how did you even do those interviews? I think it took us a while to kind of source out like our outline and what we were doing and what we wanted to cover. And then in the beginning, we'd try to cover everything with everybody. And then kind of as time went on, we realized, okay, let's pinpoint more. What's this person? And we did pre-interviews for a lot of people. So it really helped kind of guide what they knew about and what they didn't know about. And, and that really took us down that path. And I think that's where a lot of the magic really came from. Um, in seeing what people were really interested in, what kind of personally touched them, especially as children or young people, um, and their like anecdotal personal experiences with the films and television. I feel like that's where the stories come, the tear-jerking stories, the laughing stories. I think that the way it evolved to be more personalized with each interviewee um, is like the really special part. And when I first heard of this, my first thought went to Mrs. Danvers, which is in this clip a lot. Is that, was that a common first touchstone for a lot of people? Yes, for me, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All the dykes love Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. Let's be real. It's interesting how things sort of broke down on uh, gender lines, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, that there were more queer women who wanted to talk about Mary Shelley and more queer men who wanted to talk about James Whale and where those kind of inspirations came from. And of course, there was a lot of crossover, but it was you know, interesting that some things kind of did break down on, on gender lines. How were the episodes broken down? Because there's four episodes of this. Um, is there a specific theme to each episode? And what are those, if you can talk about that? Uh, right now, it's four episodes. And we're finding, <laughs> honestly, every time we're in editing, it's, it's about finding the things that speak to each other. So uh, we had, for instance, in episode two, we had lesbian vampires and lesbian ghosts and exploitation and women in prison. But we also had transformation genres and atomic monsters. And when you get into the editing of the stories, you start to figure out, okay, we need to have a whole episode about dangerous women, as opposed to like peppering it through. And, and it's continuing to evolve. Like every time we're in the edit room, it's like, maybe this goes over there and that one goes over here. Well, just from looking at the clip um, or the sizzle, whatever we're calling it, there's such an array of people you have. I mean, you have Anthony Perkins, that's his son, right? Mm -hmm. Which is amazing, like, I, I love that you got him. Um, but, but talk about just wanting to have that mix of just a lot of different perspectives and not, not the same kind of people. I think it was important to us to really make sure we had a diverse representation, and especially with a lot of the horror stuff in the beginning, it's all made by, like, white dude, white dude, white dude. So we really wanted to make sure that we were covering it from a different perspective. And so we wanted to make sure to represent non-binary, trans, queer, people of color, everything you could think of. And, and, and I think the, um, also the genre is so sprawling and that's kind of what it made it so hard to kind of pin it down because there's just so many different choices. Whereas with something like horror noir, you were doing kind of one topic. And, and for us, we're you know, still on that adventure, so. Soon we'll have more. <laughs> I, I want to ask you each, each of your own personal first touchstones with this subject when you were a kid or 
whenever you're watching something, because I, I remember watching Psycho when I was, I was probably like seven or eight years old, and I remember there was something about the fact that Norman was dressing up as his mother that fascinated me, and I didn't understand it at that point. But that, to me, is like the first time I kind of really noticed that. Do you each have one of those, like your, your early one that you want to talk about? Nay, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I know we've already talked about Mrs. Danvers, um, but I think as a young person, and I was a really big Hitchcock fan because I could get the movies for free from the library, and they were old enough that my mom wouldn't question me about like what they were. She's like, oh, it's old, so you know, the the content is appropriate, um, and. You know, I think it's like a really special thing when you think back to maybe a character or a movie that really you were really into as a kid, and then you're older and you're like, oh, that is really gay. Like, that is so very gay. And it's so validating, I think, for myself as someone who came out like in my 20s and not like as a child to be like, oh, you know, I've felt so embarrassed like I was being fake, but like actually as much as I could. I was being as genuine as I felt safe to be. Um, and so I think Alfred Hitchcock really, because of how many queer people inspired his work, how many queer people were writing the movies and starring in the movies, I don't know that I knew that what was drawing me to it, um, but certainly now I do, which is like the most fun, beautiful feeling to have. Yeah. Steak? Uh, mine's a little older. It's um, eight, well, it's actually newer than that, but I don't know. Whatever. It's uh, HR Puffin stuff is really what kind of brought me into the whole thing. Um, it just felt like this kid went into a magic world and he had a super gay flute, and then there were just freaks and weirdos all over the place. And I was like, what is this show? I, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And as a kid, I didn't really understand as much as I do now. But now you're just like, this is the show for like happy place for all weirdos and freaks. And um, so I, I found that super great. And then as I got older, for me, John Waters, I feel like makes horror for the mainstream, right? That's, that's like, he just tried to push every boundary and that's what I love pushing boundaries. So, so for me, that's what I really related to, to sort of just like, let me see what I can do in, to deconstruct everything social that you know. And I think, you know, now, now we're getting into like, uh, Yellow Jackets and Killing Eve, which, you know, where women actually get to be the lead of, you know, tearing society apart. And I, it, it, it makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian? Uh, as far as, like, specific, like, if we're going back to kind of proto-origin stories, I have to say the monster cereals. And the commercials for the monster cereals always had Count Chocula and Frankenberry clutching each other and sleeping in the same bedroom together. And uh, I thought they were really, I, I, it's not that I wanted them to have sex as much as I was happy that they had intimacy together. <laughs> so that was kind of foundational for my, my horror uh, experience. Well, in these, these stories and these characters, they do reflect what's going on in society a lot of times. Can you talk about that a little bit? And is that a part of the series, like just talking about what, what these things mean to the society either then or now? 
I think for all of us, the more that we kind of dug into the subject matter, and we're excited to share it with anybody. If you're if you're here, you're you're curious. We all learned so much starting this project. I didn't know that Bram Stoker was queer. I didn't know that Mary Shelley was queer. Uh, and so there were a lot of things where I remember specifically as a kid reading Dracula and you know googling via microfiche uh, as a, like you know who is this guy and why is he writing about things that make me tingle and seeing that he's you know married with kids and then you have somebody like David Skull who wrote this fantastic book uh, in the blood and you learn that Bram Stoker married Oscar Wilde's beard after Oscar Wilde was imprisoned for homosexual dalliances and also wrote all of these thirsty letters to Walt Whitman about like, you know, paraphrasing, but I lock my door and I masturbate to your same-sex poetry and this is my grinder ad for what I look like and if you would like that sort of thing, we should meet. So all of that brought a new understanding to, to kind of looking at queer people in the time in which they were telling their stories and taking all of the restrictions of those times and pulling them away and seeing a true representation of these queer artists. Um, I want to ask about Hitchcock a little bit. You brought him up, um, and we, we talked about Rebecca already. I took a Hitchcock class in college. At USC? Uh, Indiana University okay. in Bloomington. Um, okay. Yeah, hi. Midwest. Uh, <laughs> but um, this was, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s, and we, there was no section in the books we read about the, the queerness of his movies or any of that. So I, I'm curious if any of your research or anybody know that, was he aware of what he was putting in his movies? Like, was he conscious of it? I know he's very focused on his blonde women and all of that, but I, I, I wish I had time to go back and look at those, some of those books, because I don't remember anything like that, but did you come across any of that? Yeah, he, I mean, he was in community with lots of queer people um, and inspired by, I mean, sometimes, not sometimes, it's always a little bit gross to like, think a, a straight person is like inspired by this like other lifestyle or you know something like that however um, being in community with such brilliant and innovative and fabulous people how can you not be inspired by that um, and you asked me something else and it left um, <laughs> it, was, it was really just was Hitchcock, how, how aware was oh, Hitchcock of yeah, what he was no, doing he, he was a, he was definitely aware and I if I can talk about something Oz Perkins said in his interview um, he was just like Hitchcock was way too impish to not know what he was doing <laughs> and I was like that's really interesting I never thought about it like that what, what did surprise you in the interviews? Do you have any specific things you can talk about without spoiling the series, but just things that people did bring up that either you had never heard of before or just a different perspective? Anything come to mind with any of your interview subjects? There's so many emotional stories. Oz Perkins' interview was, was actually fantastic because uh, we reached out to him initially because you know he... His dad died very publicly, and then his mother died very publicly, and we didn't want to do a show that was like, hey, your dad died of AIDS, uh, and bring more sort of trauma to the family. And I, I called him, and I was like, we're doing this documentary. We can just put his picture along with a bunch of others. We don't have to say he died of AIDS. We don't have to say that he was gay. We can play it suggestively if 
if it's going to be traumatizing for the family. We don't, like, it isn't a gotcha kind of documentary. And he said, if you want to tell the truth about my dad, you have my permission. And it became this therapy session of what it was like to grow up in a house where you're being gaslit by your parents and knowing what the true story is. And it was really, really intimate. And he's never given that interview before to anybody. And he agreed to talk to us about it. So it felt very special. And there were elements of that interview. There were several interviews where I was, it's fascinating because you're, you don't want to see a person upset, uh, but you're like, this is good. This is good for the audience to see. And we've got something golden here. And it was definitely, uh, we all had that feeling with Oz's interview because it just felt like we were peeking behind the curtain in a way that, that people just hadn't had access to before. I think I'd gotten a little complacent in just feeling like it's okay to be gay and I'm okay with it, so everyone else should be okay with it. And I think the times around us have changed for the worse lately, um, and it's very upsetting, but everyone came in with these emotional stories and they, they would come in and you'd be like, oh, it was hard for you even though you grew up in the 2000s, or it was hard, you know, because sometimes you think, oh, it wasn't as hard because I grew up in the 70s or in the 80s, you know, but it's hard all the time. And so for me, it was really important to try to represent that so that we could show people out there who may not have anyone to talk to that it's okay to be you. And, you know, there's a big freak family out here for you and, you know, come and find it. And I, I think um, just how touching everyone's stories were, just how horror was so important to people and how intertwined it is with the queer community and how you know, our rights have gone up and down and how it was super queer before the Hayes Code and then it kind of got much more coded queer in, during the Hayes Code and then we didn't recover for a super long time. <laughs> you know, it took us all the way till I don't know now, honestly, to really recover from some of that, and um, and just I don't know how much how much queerness there was in 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 the mix for me. Yeah, I mean, there were so many really really touching and personal interviews, and I was constantly amazed by people's willingness to be so very vulnerable in like a room with lights on them and like crew members they don't know their names and like you know, people asking them questions and um, asking them for their opinions and them not just kind of regurgitating these really boring or basic stories, but them telling stories about coming out to their parents and how their parents acted or like someone being like, you know what, I watched Heavenly Creatures and then I left my man. Like, I, you know, and it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I don't know why I didn't expect our community to like just bring it and like be themselves. Um, but there's some kind of cord that pulls through all of it where you know, you're living a life where you constantly have to carve out something more acceptable for you, where you constantly have to like rethink and innovate, like how does that apply to me as someone who was never thought of while all of these rules were made or someone who was thought of when these rules were made so that I couldn't be myself. And to watch people openly and vulnerably talk about you know, the shame and embarrassment they felt, um, the, the real-life danger and life-threatening stuff that they went through to be who they are. Um, I know I was especially really touched to meet people who were doing activism when I was a child. 
and, and, ha and listen to them talk about, you know, Amanda Burst talking about coming out in the 90s. Um, and I'm thinking like, oh, I was watching Married with Children and I didn't know why I was so obsessed with Marcy Darcy, but, um, and then to think like, I got really emotional thinking like, I was this child in this really conservative, very religious home, somehow got to watch Married with Children. Um, and I'm like idolizing this person who I don't know anything about her sexuality, definitely didn't know anything about mine at the time. And then I get to meet this person as an adult and she's saying like why she came out and like she had to come out for because her daughter was born and the kind of world she wanted her child to live in. And I was like, you were fighting for me back then. Like you were doing things that have a direct impact on my life now. I can't believe I have the opportunity to thank you for that. I can't believe that I'm being like blessed with this story. Everything just felt so delicious. Like we were just eating it up behind the screen. Like I, I cannot believe what people are willing to share. And I think it's, you know, the more we talk and the more stories we share, the more validation we feel because you're like, oh, you did that too? Or like, oh, you know, I did that. And then I was so scared that I didn't talk about it for 20 years and someone else is like, no, I just did that. And so all of these different perspectives and stories and trajectories are just, I think it's so beautiful to watch our community really be able to tell those stories and kind of like no holds barred. Like they're telling these stories. Um, and it was, it, it was just like a huge honor. Yeah. Vis visibility in these films, these stories, and then the people making them. It all makes a big difference, especially whether, whether you're a little kid and don't really know why you're drawn to something, or you're older and you're like, okay, I know exactly why I'm drawn to that. Um, what, uh, talk, talk about now, you know, now we see queer characters in horror films and in, in television. And it's a very normal thing. It's just something that's there. But when, do you know when did that change? When did, I mean, did it just change with the times? When, it was, when we were seeing more gay characters on television and film, or does that come up in the show at all? Uh, yeah, we kind of have this thesis about how horror was really fun in the 90s, and we had Kevin Williamson doing his thing with, I know what you did last summer, and Scream, and the faculty, and then uh, as we got into the aughts, horror became a lot of no fun for, uh, for you know, Good for you if you're into uh, Hostel and Saw and and uh, what those shows you know do for the audience, but a lot of us who were horror fans from the get-go felt disenfranchised by a distinctively uh, horror bro take on the genre that felt alienating, and that was something that kept on coming up for all of our interviewees, where they're like, "I was really into horror except for this period." And then I disengaged, and now I came back with Jennifer's body because it started to invite me back in again. Uh, so those kind of movements in the genre were really interesting. And we talk, is, is that a product of you know September 11th attacks, or is that just what the general direction of misogyny and and cinema is? flowing and so we, we kind of put both of those things up and say well which is it for you because both are true well, let's talk about television a little bit because there's a lot of television in the in the clip in the sizzle um, but when did you start seeing that um, or what are some examples early television with horror and even more contemporary like the I love that Willow's in there from Buffy because that's just has to be <laughs> Um, but there's, there must be other old, older ones than that. That uh, can you talk about some of those that you came across? And 
are in there? I mean, I think we have we have a section on you know what we call gateway horror. So, kitty horror maybe something that isn't as terrifying as you know hostile, which I, I like the torture porn of the of the yeah. odds, but like that's just me. Um, <laughs> she just uh, told us that now. <laughs> on stage, you're like, I hate these movies. They're horrible. Yeah, I was like, I only got here because I said I hate them, and then <laughs> I dropped the bomb. Um, but certainly, I mean, like things like the Adams Family or the Munsters or you know Beetlejuice, uh, things that were like slightly, le you know, not as gory, and like your parents would probably be like, yeah, you can watch that. Um, that like really got people's uh, appetites wet for more. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Well, I think you know with. Buffy and True Blood, you started to get queer characters, but they still, you know, they're not allowed to kiss for the whole show, or they're not, you know, so I think even now we're still struggling to have, I mean, there's not very many shows where there's a queer lead in a horror show or otherwise. I mean, I, you know, there's Handmaid's Tale, okay, that's not very nice. Um, I mean, it's a great show, but bummer if you're a homo. Um, and, uh, and then, um, you know, you have Killing Eve where she's a psychotic killer, but, you know, she, it, you know it's still pretty fun. And then, um, you know, in between there's been other shows, but I, I, you know, we're still struggling with representation. And I, I mean, I know, you know, even for you as a maker, it was a long road to get queer characters into your shows, and you're still working on that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely easier now, uh, but it is something where, you know, there are so many different kinds of queer people that uh, it's, it's going to be hard for us to see all of us represented, and I think that's why we need queer storytellers, and hopefully we have some queer storytellers out in the audience who uh, are gonna be bringing their own visions to the genre. And there, we need more of that because there, that's the thing that we found over the course of making the show is that just how many different kinds of queer people there are and what the interests of those queer communities are. We talked to a lot of people from the, the kink and uh, BDSM community and that was, that was fascinating because there's unique perspectives on the Hellraiser films and what those do as sort of broadening the pop culture sensibility when it comes to different ways to express yourself sexually. When I remember, I was telling somebody else the story that Brian, when you and I used to talk about Hannibal, I was doing LGBT press at the time and I would always ask like, what, when are they gonna kiss? Because it was there. It was Season so four. there. Yeah. But I, but I love those conversations because you explain how it was about intimacy and it wasn't about sex. And, but even that was such a unique perspective that we hadn't seen on television before. Two men getting incredibly close to each other. Well, and that really responded for a lot of people in the ace community because there was true, deep, intimate love, uh, but they, they hadn't, you know, had sex. So, and that's something that you know, in talking to people uh, who are horror fans on the queer spectrum, there are people that, that don't express themselves sexually and that's not part of their vocabulary. And so something like Will and Hannibal gives them a pathway to a, a great intimate bond with another person that doesn't have all of the things that are so loaded for them regarding sexual intimacy. 
but it, it definitely felt like it was on a trajectory toward more physical expression. Yeah. Wow. Um, we're going to get, oh, do you have something? Do you think that, I'm like, a question for Brian. Uh, <laughs> Go, Nick. Do you think that there's like this convergence? Well, one, I'm like, we have so many elders who did not make it right like our community i'm like i don't know what kind of art and and cre creatorship would happen if like there hadn't been an aids crisis or like a genocide um but do you think that like we needed like i mean real talk like did we just need people with actual power to make those things like is it easier because you're like yeah i'm brian fuller <laughs> uh, like do you think that like i mean maybe initially like that was a like a huge a huge fight but do you think like you and, and Don Mancini and, and Kevin and like having that kind of community of creators who have created really popular things helps other people get into the door? Yes, yes, I think uh, any, it, it's, it's great for our community that Chucky was such a huge hit and is so clearly about queer representation and the Child's Play series more than just about any other horror franchises really embrace queer sensibilities. And that was one of the things that I, I love about Don Mancini as a storyteller is that he was kind of fearless with Seed of Chucky because on paper, if you're saying you're going to tell a trans narrative about a genderless doll in the context of this horror franchise, uh, it's shocking that nobody stopped him. And he just kept going with it. And I think he was like, well, this is the story that I see. And I talked to Don about this, and he wasn't, he wasn't like, I didn't have an agenda. I just thought this was the natural evolution of the story and these characters. And I think because Chucky is a young adult queer-themed show, it's going to open the door for a lot of other queer-themed shows that are young adult. Good question, Nate. <laughs> Uh, we're going to get the questions from you guys in just a second. Um, I, wa I want to know, it's, it's kind of a basic question, but what, what do you hope people take from this show, from watching the four episodes? Brian, or stay? Go ahead. I hope that they get some queer history and some belongingness um, and that they're entertained along that path. I hope. I hope people feel validated in their own feelings and, and life stories. I also hope that people feel rowdy from it and they, they feel like empowered to speak about their experience and other people's experience. Um, and they're like starting arguments at the holiday table. They're like, actually Vincent Price, what, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, that I kind of like, I love, you know, speaking of Handmaid's Tale, I feel like there's this part in Handmaid's Tale where you watch one person make a statement and it kind of, one marginalized person make a statement and it kind of reverberate through other people like, oh, you said that out loud? Okay, okay. And I think there's a lot of moments when I'm, I'm watching or going through our episodes and I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> we said that, like, yeah, we really said that. And I think that that's just, I want people to feel what I feel because it, it almost feels invincible and obviously like we know that like we're not invincible, but to walk away with like the queer history that you're mentioning and this kind of like foundation for like, this isn't new and there are people I can talk to about it and just feeling really empowered to tell their stories, to innovate, you know, the way that they are envisioning and that they feel, I don't know, like badass, like they feel strong and supported and yeah, like rowdy. 
Yeah. I think that's one of the things that all of us feel is important uh, working on this documentary is that queer people feel a sense of ownership of the genre because we're often in this genre, it feels like it's, it's heteronormative on one level uh, most frequently, but going back, you know, queers created the genre and queers told all of the elemental foundational stories in the genre that then were sort of processed by other storytellers and broken down. But you can go back to the very origins of horror storytelling and say a queer person had that point of view and perhaps needed to be queer to have that point of view and that perspective. And, and that's really exciting. So. Uh, it's appropriate for this month, but hopefully people have, take a sense of pride and ownership in the horror genre as queer people, because it um, is ours. Yeah. I just add one more thing. I think that, you know, the other thing is horror stories are often these survival stories. So I think for all of us, it's like really this like empowerment, even though you know, it could be quite violent or crazy or whatever, but you know, at the end you're like, kill them, Sydney, get rid of them all, you know, like, and so I think, you know, for me, it also just is an empowerment in that way. All right, um, I have a feeling you guys have questions. Um, so let's bring up the lights and let's get some questions going. We'll start right here in front, sir. Speak loudly so everybody can hear you. Yes, I wanted to ask all of you um, if there's been any recent horror film or TV show that you've watched recently that you really love. It could be new or something old that like you just watched for the first time. Um, I'm curious like what you're currently okay. If you guys couldn't hear the question, the question was like, what have they seen recently that's current that, that inspired? Yellow jackets. Ye yellow jackets. <laughs> Period. Period. Yeah. Yellow jackets is so good. I mean, Karen, Karen Kusama is, I'm like, right. And then we, ha we were like fortunate enough to have some of the cast come in um, for the doc because they are actual queer people. And... Some of them we didn't know were actual queer people when they came in for the interviews and, and then they like came out. And that's how good the interview was. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was like honestly, no, now knowing those folks and then watching the artistry of that show, I, I've already watched it twice through, you know, just like dying for the next thing. It's funny, when we first started this project, uh, neither Chucky nor Yellow Jackets came out and we were like, shit, we have to do a whole bunch of new interviews because this is changing the conversation again in a really great way. Okay, um, right here in the center with the blue hat. Thanks. So the question is, uh, Will, one of the characters on Stranger Things, is sort of, they're kind of, for lack of a better word, or just the first one that came to mind, pussyfooting around <laughs> his queerness and uh, suggesting maybe that he is, but not saying it explicitly and walking that fine line, but not committing in a way that's fulfilling to the queer audience. It's time to commit. Enough of the pussyfooting around. <laughs> All right, uh, sir, right here. What genre of horror are y'all like not? <laughs> the, for me, the, the torture porn, although I, I did like Hostel 2 better than Hostel 1. Um, mainly just because, you know, the protagonist wins and, you know, dog eats a dick and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, like, comedy to be had from it. Uh, but the torture porn for me, 
uh, was something that felt like it wasn't as much fun as I was previously having in horror films watching somebody engage with a killer. And, and, oh, and I think a lot of that had to do with just limiting uh, what the victim could do. If they're tied to a chair and you're chopping them to pieces, they don't really have an arc or, but if it's Jenny Field in Friday the 13th Part 2, you get a steady cam and you follow her through the forest and you're having a ball. And it's like an innovative chase sequence. So I think for me, part of it was the restrictions put upon the victims that didn't allow them to have a character story. They were just victims. Was part of the limitation in my case. And for me, I, I don't like if it, it's too real that I'm just gonna have a nightmare. So I, I'm kind of the, you know, I don't know, I like, it. I like a little fantasy in there, a little comedy, a little, something a little more fun, or, or just, it can be weird, it just has to be not just like murder show. Um, I, I think I have at least a few favorites from probably all the subgenres, but I don't like horror movies where black people die really quickly, or at all. Um, I think like, even if I really like the movie, especially the older I get, I'm like, you know, that's never not going to disappoint me. Um, and you know, in, in the doc we talk about the barrier gaze trope, where we also see, you know, gay people get killed. and. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't always hit right for me. It depends on like the the climate at the time. I'm like, oh, did like the cops just kill someone? And so like this is like hitting me a different way, or you know. So that's I don't always enjoy that. Uh, anybody in the back? I don't want to miss the people. Anyone up there? She has the one must-see horror film that we should all see. Scream. <laughs> kind of straightforward, but hey, whatever. I mean, I can't overthink it, Candyman. I only sang it once. The new Candyman? I mean, I definitely want you all to watch that. Um, I was talking about the original, but yeah. no hate on the new one by any means. I like the new one I quite love. a bit. I love. Oh, we saw it yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, maybe, is another. Uh, I love Alien. Uh, and. There's something very uh, trans femme about Ripley as a character, written as a man, and then they didn't change any of the dialogue, it just cast a woman, and she was the smartest person on the ship. And also, I, it was the first movie that I understood production design and the importance of production design and the psychology of production design because you have a giant penis-headed monster who's trying to destroy a family unit and the mother's like, I'll pick the cock over my kids. So there's a lot of layers to it that I love. That's bad. Um, you guys, we're out of time. Queer for Fear will air this fall um, on Shudder and AMC+. Everybody, thank you for being here. Thanks to everybody here. Thank you for coming out. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.